0: Street lecture number 20, Rabbi Blyweis. We're updating ourselves and yesterday where the question was just now, um, why is Michal, what was the question? Why was Michal punished in a way where um, David was affected also? Right, why was she punished if David was affected? The answer is she was punished in a way that only she was affected. David had eight, uh, the, the, the Gemara figures out based on, based on the way the Tzuchim are phrased that he had, we know of six names of six of his wives, but it figures out that there were three times that. So he had 18 wives. Um, and that's the maximum a king is allowed to have. Sorry, if anybody had uh, kingly aspirations and you happen to come from the seat of David, uh, only 18 wives for you. Wow. Yes. I thought Shlomo had seventy wives. He had like
1: 900 and
0: something wives. You're understating it, both of you. He had, well, actually, to be more precise, he had only 700 wives, 300 in addition concubines. But, but we'll get so to Shlomo so, HaMelech. So why was David in the United David followed the halacha on the subject. Shlomo didn't. And that's what caused. Shlomo. Hold on, we're ahead of ourselves. We're ahead of ourselves. So what makes it eighteen? Specifically? Um, the the psukim. They they derive from the psukim eighteen. Oh, that's right. Mm-hmm. There were three times six. One speaking of David's wives. One evening, remember, he's now conquered Ir David, which is another way of talking about Jerusalem, and he walks to his roof and he sees a beautiful woman. Her name is Bathsheba, and she's married. And he recognizes that she will be his future wife. David, after all, has Nehuah. He has, he has an element of Nehuah. He recognizes she's going to be the future wife. He recognizes that she's a great, righteous woman. And what it seems to be from the verses is that David sets up her husband to die in order that he might, make, uh, he might be able to marry the woman. That's what it seems like from the Psukim, and as I concluded yesterday's class, I quoted Chazal, famous in the Gemara in Shabbos, Misha Omer Eino Anybody who says that David made, um, excuse me, Chata, um, sinned, is mistaken, it's not what it appears to be, and Chazal explained it as follows. Um, indeed, David told, uh, tells Yoab, his great valiant general, to, uh, to go out to war and to take Uriah, Uriah, her husband, along and put him on the battlefront, and indeed that's what happens, and indeed he tells them, when um, you yell, I'm paraphrasing, when you yell charge, all the soldiers will be secretly instructed to withdraw while Uriah lunges forward which is usually somewhat risky as being the lone soldier who goes up against in the battlefront. And he indeed does die. He does die. Now, why does Uriah die? Chazal explain he was chayev Misa. He was indeed subject to the death penalty. He had been, like Shaul, accused of it incorrectly. This time Uriah was generally subject to the capital punishment because he rebelled against the king he deliberately and brazenly referred to Yoav as his master in front of David. And by doing that, uh, he was insubordinate in a way that undermined the entire institution of the monarchy. And he denied a direct order, too. He denied a direct order. So he really was of Misa. David technically did no wrong, therefore, by sending him out. There was a mistake, but it's a relatively minor one in the scheme of things that I'll point to in a moment. Right. The mistake was he should have gone to the Sanhedrin uh, to make sure that they adjudicated it and said he was Chaib Misa and went through proper orders, even though technically he didn't have to. As a king, he's allowed to, take, uh, to use his discretion to kill people when he sees fit. He was he was able to do that, but Chazal fault him because it looked bad. It was what we call maris ayn It made him look like he was acting out of personal interest instead of according to halacha. He was acting good halacha, but it didn't look that way. Um, still, the navi of the days we've seen him, we saw him yesterday. His name is Nosan, Nosan Hanavi comes to David and tells a very famous parable. He describes how uh, there was a rich man who had everything, and a poor man who had but one lone lamb, one little animal that was his. That was his own source of livelihood. He loved the. He loved the um, the the little lamb. Um, it wasn't Mary, but it was a poor man. And um, in the end, the rich man managed to take make off with that lamb, and. Um, At the end of the parable, Nassan says to David, what would you, king, suggest that we do to the rich man for stealing the one thing that this poor man had? And uh, David responded and said, uh, the man, he was angry too, the man should die and pay four times the value of the lamb, to which Nassan turns to David and very famously in rebuking, Hata ha'ish, you're that man. Somebody hit the low chords of the piano, please. Da, 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 da. Right, in other words, in other words, um, tremendous rebuke, very, I mean, sometimes the raw language of the Pesukim really are quotable and powerful and poignant uh, in terms of how they really set up Musr and how we're supposed to learn from this. You're the man, as it were, you took sheva from her husband, as it were, the one thing that he had, and then you, you, you took her, and again, it's incredibly harsh. Critical, insofar as David's sin was relatively minor. And we find a pattern in history again where Hashem and His Prophets hold the tzaddikim to a very high level. What was considered a sin for David, for any one of us, might have even been a virtue, might have been nothing. But since, uh, uh, since the, the king is a role model and is held to a higher level, he is punished. Uh-huh. And his, his punishment is going to be fourfold, as I'm about to say. But first, a question from the floor. Uh, I don't remember who was first, Daniel or Jake? Um, yeah. Jake, take it. No, that's his son coming soon to a near you. Today are, or tomorrow? Yes. It speaks about somebody who steals a, a lamb. Yes. From yeah, right. They don't get to that. They have to pay only four times in the amount, but that's only because it Correct. happens to be a lamb. Correct. And human beings entirely different. Human beings entirely different. Certainly, um, the, the rich man different. is not subject to the capital to capital punishment. So David I mean, is I mean, using what's I mean. called lasha. David when he says you know kill the man and have to pay for it and that kind of th- kind of thing he's not take- he's not to be taken literally he understands that the man did something morally problematic and deserves a harsh treatment and, and so nason turns to david and said you're that man who did something morally problematic you have to be completely above and beyond suspicion like moshe had no inseam in his garment there can't be any indication that you're involved in self interest or foul play david was not high of mesa for it um, the man. Oh, awesome. well, because he spoke. He he did that should die. No, no. He, he said, you're that man in the parable. That's all he said. And the Navi has special stature. We haven't yet talked about one of the next classes. We're going to take a moment and pause and consider the institution called Navi, the Navim, which is really interesting and unique. We have nothing like it in our world. And their function as, as the moral backbone of the people they could call out anybody and everybody because they were actually Hashem's voice piece. And therefore, when they said it, uh, they were speaking Lashem Shemaim, and their words therefore carried tremendous weight. How did Nathan just come up? He just appeared. This was the first time they mentioned it. We know Chazal tell us that Nason was um was one of one of the great prophets in the inner circle of shmuel anavi and then he's the next in the tradition and he's part of the messiah that we still have to do we talk about the messiah so he, he plays a very important role now david is punished chazal tell us that david is punished fourfold uh, just like the man had to pay four times the value of the lamb so too david has to pay four times and here his punishment is Batsheva, he he had he had he had cohabited with Batsheva legally he married her and cohabited, and she became pregnant, and she lost that baby. That was the first punishment. Um, and he's going to be punished with the various fates of his children, Amnon, Tamar, and Absalom, respectively, all of which we'll talk about today, Bezras Hashem. And he loses his he'll also lose his concubines is that brought as part of the retribution of this? Yeah, yeah because they said it's four concubines because it says just as you see ah uh, yeah that's it, right that's very good excellent Barak, thank you um david makes tshuva um later on in his life he is brought a, a a woman by the name of abishag who was brought to comfort him in his old age when he, when clothes you remember how clothes don't comfort the man he cut the excellent, excellent he, Right, he cut the garment of Shaul Hamelech. to now clothes no longer provide comfort, and he's freezing. And finally, they bring him a young woman, Abish, Abishad, to comfort him. And David shows his penitence. Uh, he had taken his, he'd maxed out on wives. He had 18 wives, as was. If he would have married Abishag, that would have been 19. That's against the halacha. So he had this young woman in proximity where he could have done something, and the average red-blooded male might have done something, and he did nothing. He did not touch Abishag, even though she was there to provide some kind of warmth. Question. If the king goes against the halacha, like, you know, going past the age of life, isn't there, like, any sort of, for example, like, America has, has impeachment has an impeachment. Do we have a procedure? Yes, we potentially have a procedure of of, of getting rid of the king. Alternately, in the days of the king, we had Nevoah. So Hashem has another way of dealing with such individuals, and we're going to see that. We're going to see in the case of Shlomo, He's not impeached, but he's certainly held responsible for his negligence, and we're, as we're going to see, and he, he definitely, he definitely violated. Uh, he, had, he had many horses, and kings are only allowed to have a minimum number of horses. He violated several things that a king is not allowed to violate. We're ahead of ourselves. Yeah, because then. Dictator, it's uh, you're not allowed to go down to Egypt. The the Pusuk says the, there's certain things that a king. Look back a few weeks ago in Parashat Parashat Shokhtim, we see the limits of what a king can and can't do. And he married to. And foreign women too. And he married foreign women. All all Basically, kinds of all kinds of all kinds of issues yeah. with Shlomo. But we're not on yeah. Shlomo right now. We're talking about David and mm-hmm. really cool. Uh Why didn't he? Yeah. Um he no 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 I think because he wants he wants to show that he has made chuva completely. Chuva is chuva uh, has different levels. The highest level of chuva is what we call chuva kamura, absolute chuva, which means you get to the same position that you previously sinned and you don't know sin. You know, the ultimate test. So here he was with a woman where he could have sinned, and he held himself back. David is from the, the, the seed of Yehuda. Yehuda as a tribe, Yehuda as an individual figure, and as a tribe, and certainly in the personality of David, they symbolize, they epitomize the notion of tshuva. They're people who mistake, who, who, who fall. Sheva, Yipol, Vakam, they fall seven times, but they get back up again. That's what's called tshuva, and as we mentioned before, they are ideal leaders. We seek leaders who are not perfect, beware the perfect leader, people who are flawed but can admit their flaws um, and be able to, to reconcile them. Look at in contrast the Western leaders of the last decade, the last twenty years, last century, rare if any but rare rarely do you find any leaders Who um, admit to misdoing because to do so is to undermine yourself. In the current atmosphere politically, you'd be finished if you if you if you admitted. I remember. I mean, my favorite line. I think it was from maybe the election eight years ago. Hillary Hillary Clinton was running, um, and she uh, seven years ago, whenever it was, she was she was running and they caught her. I, I don't remember what it was. Just I mean, just flagrantly, blatantly messing up and making a mistake, uh, she said something totally wrong, so rather than taking responsibility and saying that she was wrong, she said she misspoke. She misspoke. Right? And was, that's what a politician does. That's not what David does. David says, chatati, avisi, pashati, I made a mistake. Like remember Yehuda, his ancestor said, tzadka mimeni publicly accepted shame when he admitted his own mis- misdoings with uh, with Tamar and we find that in the legacy David is, is, is one of our role models in Tshuva. Um, and we're inspired by him not as a perfect person but Dafka because he uh, he accepts his faults and overcomes them. Indeed bat Sheva, he marries Batsheva the child dies but the long term result because they try to rebuild and Hashem believes in us and knows that we can come back uh, we can fall seven times, but get right back up again. They have another child, and this one survives. And his name is Shlomo. That is the child that comes to uh, the union of David and Bathsheba. Aren't you not allowed to put yourself in a position you at least You mean, in other words, you shouldn't test yourself? And let's say the guy had a certain weakness. You shouldn't try to indulge, or shouldn't try to test that. Absolutely true. And look in Rambam Hilchos However. And it's true. Don't try this at home, kids. Don't put yourself into that position because you're more likely to stumble and fall than to than to make tshuva. what the Rambam means when he defines silchos tshuva uh, gomura, He says, but if in life you find yourself in that situation then Mimela that, that, and you respond to it well, then you've seen that you've made Chubakmora. Yeah, only Hashem that. usually knows if our chuva he always knows. I'm saying he would the the, the, the nature of our chuva, whether it's complete or not, is often only only determined by Kharusbarhu for precisely the reason you say that I never repeat that exact experience. Let's say a guy has a huge Sahara, and finally as an old man he makes chuva, that's also not necessarily Chubakmora because he no longer usually as an older man has the same uh, libido as, an, as the same sahara so he can't ever really replicate the situation and say that he's completely overcome that Yetzer. Well, so, but, but, but okay, but you yeah. do your best under the circumstances. Himself into the concubine? Uh, he doesn't get a concubine. That was what they, they brought to David, and he did a Le'shem Shemaim, and he could have potentially made her a concubine, and he with, 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 withstood that. And that was what he needed medically. Akiva, what you say? Um, is that not the example we just gave with David? He was a young man, and now he's an older man. Inachinami, inachinami. That's true. That's a that's a that's a fair point. So it wasn't. Uh, there might it might have been better. He might have been. It, it was easier for him to withstand the withstand uh, the the temptation. Um, in our Gemara in Makos, we and it's actually oh, there's a, there's an overlapping story told at the end of the Gemara in Sukkah. You can see both of them. One of the famous stories, and we're not saying every story of David. There's just too many. But another another major point of his lifetime on in the Gemara coming up on Yud Aleph. We find that Dovra Melech is picking around in the area of the threshing floor of a certain Aravna, the Jebusite. That was your benefit. Hayavusi. Aravna Hayavusi. Aravna Hayavusi, a threshing floor. And in our, in our non agrarian terms, a threshing floor is simply a place where they used to, that was part of the production of grain. It still is, but we, it looks different today in, mo, in modern technology. Uh, but once upon a time, you had a threshing floor where you brought the cows in. And they walked around and 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 ste- stepped on the seeds of, of uh, excuse me the husks of, of of grain and that's how they separated the uh, the the seed from the grain and so on. That's called a threshing floor. It was in a prime piece of real estate. Does anybody know where the what the thresh what stands in the place of the threshing floor of Aravna the Yavusi today? Dirt. Well, some dirt, but other things right now. Right now, presently, there's a building that's capped with a golden dome that stands in the same place of our base of Mikdash. Yeah. The original site was originally, do you remember? What was, before it was it was this Jebi site, who's was one of the Canaan, Canaanites, one of the Canaanites. Before it was that, do you know there's another building there? It's another us. another official um, structure there? The world's first yeshiva called Yeshivas. Oh, uh, same yeshiva. was there. And the sacrifice. Of, uh, and it's the uh, it's the place of the Akedus okay, Yitzchak. Correct. So David is in that exact same place and he's looking around because he anticipates. Remember, he's chosen Yerushalayim. He anticipates the of the base of Mikdash. He's already been notified by Nassim, the same Nassim, that he's not the one to, re- to build the base of Mikdash. But still, he is anticipating the building. He's going to have a part because a part in the process by just knowing the foundations and knowing how the structure is going to come out. And he's picking along, and what should he find if not a small shard of pottery, a, a little bit of cheris. And he is about to pick up the cheris. and the cheris, the little shard of pot- pottery, does the, well, I guess it's the logical thing under the circumstances. It speaks to David, and it says, do not pick me up. And for reasons that are the subject of uh, discussion, David does not listen. Now, I don't know about you. If we're up to me, and a little shard of like pottery spoke to me and said, do not touch me, I might have listened. But David, had, David was of a different dimension of, of being. He had his own motivation. Um, I he said, do not hit the rock. Do not hit the rock, and he does. What is the motivation? Um, it may be a similar motivation. We're going to we see this. Um, Balak was also a magician, in addition to Baggillam. And he put a curse under the area of the Temple Mount, where the Temple will be built, exact same location. And one suggestion is that Moshe had been motivated like this. That's why he wanted to come here to Israel. And now David is motivated to get down there because he wants to try to find the area and undo the curse. And so he, and perhaps for that reason, he unearths the shard of pottery. And what immediately starts happening? It starts flooding, but not just any old flood, when Hashem created the world, do you remember this in the account of creation? If not, pay attention in a couple of weeks in Parshas Praishis. Hashem divided the waters. There's upper. There are three layers: the heavenly waters, the the middle waters, and the lower waters. the The lower waters are bubbling beneath the surface, beneath the crust of the dry earth, and they threaten to rise up and overwhelm the world and flood the entire world at its source, which is the base of mikdash. And as he does this, the water starts shooting up, threatening exactly that to flood the universe. Let me tell the story and then you'll, you'll ask the question. It's about to flood the universe. There was one time previously, it's not the first time I'm mentioning this, there was one time previously that the same threat existed when the water was about to flood the universe, but, but some people said something and they, and they, and they contained it. What, when was that time, do you remember? I know. It was by Mas- Masantira. At the time that the Jews were about to receive the Torah, the water also was about to flood the universe, according to Yerushalmi. And uh, who said what? And it was contained? Klal Yisrael said, Naaseh Nishma," and with that acceptance of all <laughs> Malchut Shemaim of the yoke of the heavens, on them, they contained the flood at Hashem, as it were, corked the bottle with that shard of pottery, with that little piece of, uh, that little fragment, the talking fr- uh, shard of pottery, and the, and, and, it, and the water had been contained until then, and now David uncorks it, and the water is about to flood the universe. David knows that the solution to this is to write Hashem's holy name on the shard of pottery and to throw it back in, because Hashem's name can perform wonders and miracles, that will stop it up. But David doesn't know the halacha, uh, he doesn't know the halacha, what do you do? Can you erase Hashem's name or not? Erasing Hashem's holy name is a, is, is, is a awesome, in the true sense of the word, proposition. He's not sure it's mutter. And so he says, does anybody know is this mutter and there's no response? And he says, anybody who's quiet now and knows the answer, let him strangle himself. Well, there is somebody. One of David's teachers is there. He's present, and he did know. Anybody know his name? He's one of the four. Where's Elian? I just said this to him last night. Um, He's one of the four that commoners doesn't doesn't have a portion of the world to come. His name is Achisofel. Achisofel. Familiar name? We're gonna meet him. He's he's an intriguing figure. His name is Achisofel. He knows the answer. That's right. Later, later, you're ahead of us, but yes. Also true, he was also one of uh, David's Rebis, and Ahi Sofil said like this, he said a caldo homer, all this is in the Gemara Makos, we're going to get this, so I'm, I'm giving it away but it's, it's, it's really part of history. Ahi Sofil says, you know, by Sota, by the Sota woman, is that relating to history you're looking at, whatever you're looking at? Ahi Sofil says, um, whatever, whatever, otherwise it's a distraction. Um, he says, "You know, in the in the, Sotah, in the case of the sota, Hashem allows his holy name to be erased in order to put peace between a man and his wife. It's part of the procedure. So if, uh, if Hashem would allow his name to be erased to make peace in a house between two people, how much more to save the world?" <laughs> yes, David, quickly act with haste and write the name, write the holy name, throw it in the water, David, throw it down back in the hole in the ground, under, the base, under where the basement is going to be built. David does so, and the water is contained." Jake, you are you you're, you're, you're on. What were you gonna say? Isn't there like and that's why sets, fifteen is more 15 precise. Fifteen. Go look that. up look for an elaboration on all these things, especially the Gmaran Sukkah. You'll find a whole whole uh, fifteen steps. We have Shiram and that's where we have Keneggi the, the fifteen the fifteen Shiramalos that we sing in Tehillim. Yes. Um, the marsha of the various ways of understanding the story—it's incredibly important, incredibly deep, multi-layered, like all of uh, all the stories you find in the Garta and Chazal and the Midrashim. Um, here, the marsha comments as one, one shedding light on the on the subject. Here, he equates water with the Sahara. The Sahara also lies beneath the surface at any moment, threatening to rise up and flood us, overwhelm us with its the enormity of its of its strength. And what do we need to say in order to contain that water? nishma. We also need to accept the Torah, we need to contain the Torah, we need superhuman strength. When we do so, the foundation of the universe is established and the temple itself is rebuilt. So can you connect all of these themes. I just summarized what's, what's a, a very profound explanation. There's a technical problem, Rashi has an issue with this. He doesn't understand the chronology. He says, um, Ahisophel had died years before David will later buy the threshing floor of Aravne the Yebusi so how could he be there if he's already dead and so Rashi and most people seem to accept this says that this all this whole episode happens before David even bought the temple area the, the Mount Moriah was not yet bought this is a preliminary as it, as it were he's going around and scoping the area what's that why did he buy it? Didn't he, he hasn't bought it yet. He gets permission, according to Rashi, he had sought permission from Aravna. This time, earlier, before before that, later, before he actually buys it, this is many years earlier where David goes and gets permission just to do a preliminary inspection of the area. He conquered it, but this was technically the property of Aravna. Even though he conquered it, it's the property of Aravna. How can Hashem promise? I got it there. it's a good question I don't have an immediate answer I like it though go look it up go go find it for us well, God can go against his own word. for sure for sure so clearly clearly there must be uh, something to it maybe this is not exactly a model of the same dimension I don't have an answer it's a, I like the question Why can God go such a high value on, on. Chazal had have a premise view. these are, these it's are subtle true. tricky Imagine kinds that, of questions these, the of the these are subtle tricky questions oh I'm going to launch on a really whole tangent I'm going to really thing. try to do this briefly don't, 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 don't follow up on this don't let this be one of those back and forths. let me just suffice with this the Chazal say that Hashem as it were whatever this means he's beyond anything we can comprehend but he himself says that he keeps mitzvahs Imam Baruchos tells us that the Karach Baruch to wears tefillin, whatever that means. He's not physical, so he doesn't have a head in any human terms. So what does it mean that he wears uh, his arm, a head? How does he wear tefillin exactly? But he apparently keeps his own mitzvahs. So it really is Akasha. How then, if he, by, himself, by his own admission, says he's not going to flood the world, how does this threat that the world from underneath would be flooded, maybe he's not going to bring in the form of a maabul from the heavens, maybe it's within the earth, because that's our domain, and if we neglect our, we neglect ruling the earth as humans are supposed to do. Maybe that's what's going. Maybe, maybe we're unleashing the flood in a way that Hashem doesn't. Uh, again, I don't have, I don't have clear resolution on your question. It's a good question. No, that the model, the was ground, what was that thing about not becoming a dialogue? I know it's a great line of inquiry. Go pursue it. Amnon ben David, one of David's many children. Uh, develops an unhealthy uh, attraction to a woman named Tamar, who may or may not be related. And I'll talk about the tricky family relations in a moment. Um, but the pasuk identifies her as Avshalom's sister. Avshalom is the half brother of Amnon. That would, in theory, uh, the pasuk shot indicate that Tamar is the half sister of Amnon. They all were children of David, but they had different mothers. Again, Amnon's mother is one mother. Absalom slash Tamar seemed to have a different mother, all the same father. He develops a lust. He can think of nothing else other than his half-sister, as lust tends to go. That's that's, that's what sometimes happens. It becomes an obsession to the point that he either is literally sick, as sometimes happens when people develop a lust, or he fakes, he pretends to be sick, Either way, he says, I need special nursing. I know. Why don't you send Tamar? She'd be an excellent nurse. Have her come take care of me. And uh, he says that uh, he actually loved her. Like that was. The he says, the he, loved that, that, says he loved and her. says he loved her, and Chazal he understand long that long that's way, so. not the healthy kind of love. Is that an answer for half-sister? Yes, it is. It's also an answer for one's half-sister, so that's why the Mefarshim have some problem with this. The episode, as it's described in the Psukim, pretty pretty, uh, pretty shocking. She comes, she brings some cakes to, uh, in, in order to nurse him to health. Uh, and he rapes her. Now, many of the Mepharshim say that uh, Rashi, Vadak Rabag say, they bring the Gemara in Sanhedrin, that indicates this. She was indeed David's daughter, but by an Ashish by a non-Jewish mother, which halachically would make her not his half-sister. She's if she's not Jewish, then they're technically not related, even if they share the same birth father. Uh, she would she would later convert, but when she was born, it was not she was not Jewish. So that's one line of shot. That's one line of shot.
1: Was that, that must mean correct? Lie, and that's
0: why it was not technically a violation of sleeping with one sister when Amnon has his way with her.
1: The, the reason why
0: it's a technical problem because she has, there's a pasuk where she indicates that their marriage is on some level muter, and that's what they're grappling with. Obviously, if she's a half sister, she can't be muter, can't be permitted. So they say, ah, oh, it must be that she's mutter because technically she's not Jewish. That's a pretty standard way of dealing with this and understanding this. Other Mepharshim disagree. I, my goal here is to give you... Some people give, give over history as a neat, monolithic, clear-cut series of stories. I don't find that always satisfying intellectually. I think, to be intellectually honest, sometimes we don't get it and we don't know. I like giving the messy, history of, mess, messy version of history. Um, and in this case, I'm going to simply bring the different approaches without resolving them. The Barbanll is among the who the disagrees. He says no, no, she's really Jewish and she's really the half-sister. And when she says that she implies that their their, their union is, leaning, is, is is allowed, she's just trying to um, she's trying to assuage her brother her, her genuine half-brother, but they re- the, the union is absolutely forbidden, according to Barbanll and others. Um, Tosfos says that yet another way of dealing with this. I mean, everybody's in this discussion right now. Tosvo says that, no, no, um, she wasn't David's daughter at all. It was only Avshalom's sister by their mother, in which case she wasn't even related to Amnon at all, and that's how, in that level, they were, they were lenient. I don't know. Here's, here's, here's the situation. Go look into it further. In any case, Amnon does rape her, and then his reaction is one of the famous, and especially if you learn Tanakh as Musser, as you really should, it's really such a striking image. F- picture this. If you've never heard the story before, picture this. He rapes her, finally fulfilling the dream of his lifetime, the thing he had been striving for. And his immediate, immediate reaction emotionally, he looks at her and he despises her. He cannot even look at her anymore. She is repulsive to him. And if that is not a perfect image of what the Yitzhahara does, I don't know what is. Yeah, Think about ourselves. There. Think about any time. I mean, you're all tzaddikim here, but you've probably read about people who, who haven't given into to the Yitzhahara. You've heard of people like that? Yeah? A little bit? There are people out there who don't always contain their Yitzhahara. And it's, you know what the image is? The guy who succumbs to his Sahara and does bad stuff all night long, and he wakes up and he looks in the mirror and he feels nauseous. He can't look at himself. He feels disgusted. Well, the same manifestation is coming upon Amnon. He can't look at this woman who, when he sees her, he sees, really, the embodiment embodiment of everything he could have been and is not. She is a pure embodiment of his physical, animalistic lust. And we're, we're disgusted with ourselves because, you know, we're all made with Selah melakim. Here's somebody who's the son of David, a Melech himself, who knows better, who has a pure neshama. And when we betray our own pure neshama, there's nothing, no kind of self-hatred as, as, um, as, as visceral, as strong and emotional as that. Barak? Uh, two things, yeah. So, I, mean, I love the Tanakh says that he hated her more than he ever loved her. Like yes. He hated her then more than any, and, and his love for her was immense. So that's, that's immense hatred. Yes, Daniel. But so is the issue that she isn't Jewish. Well, Again, we don't know. I gave you all the different views, and it's, the the Shim debated. It's not clear exactly what it, happened. It, 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 it might sound wrong, but so 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 Halakha is so it, so so Hold on, up. hold on. Go ahead, Jake. <laughs> um, yeah, but, but the, it's true, and he did a major of uh, as, as as a rapist, and in theory, he should have to marry her, but he can't marry her if they're really related, and it's a mess. It's a mess. It's a whole subject, so this if, one. Um, I, can I give you a... Ter- okay, go ahead. So if you look at it one way, he's allowed to marry her, but she's a non-Jew, which means she can't marry because she is a non-Jew. If, she, if, if you look at the other way, because she's a non-Jew, he can marry her, but... That, She'd have to convert. You know, if, if she's Jewish, she's a sister and can't marry her. Right. If she's non-Jewish... Married, she's not a sister, but he still can't marry her because she's not right. right, she had to convert. There's even still more opinions that she uh, was adopted and converted. There's a lot of difference. It's uh, a mess. Yeah. It's a mess. I, I'll, I'll tell you a really terrible uh, uh, postscript to the whole story. I mean, maybe this is typical of what you'd find down in what they call Ben Yehuda, in the Ben Yehuda area, downtown, um, which... It has some good stuff going on there. It's also got a sleazy, it's the sleazy part of town. There's also bad stuff going on there. One of the little streets, little alleyways, right off of Zion Square area, can you picture Zion Square? You should know from such things. But let's say you've heard from your friends talking about Ben Yehuda and Zion Square. Um, right off there, there's, there's a little alleyway that's called, it's, the street name is, Rehov Amnon V'tamar. W- why? What were they thinking? What are those, what, who names the streets in this country? And how do they have the rights? Anyway. FDR, in New York. Okay, but FDR is one thing. Amnon Vitamar, you want to like uh, m- memorialize them? <laughs> <and> <laughs> yeah. That's true. That's true. But name a street after them. That no, was sick. I mean. Aye, no, aye. Not in the I mean, you know, secular Israelis do all kinds of things. They name they name their kids after a certified reshoim in the Gemara, in, 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 in the Tanakh, too. Omri, for example, is a very common name. There's one famous Omri in all of history. He was despicable. We're about to meet him. Right? So why would you name your kid Omri? But they don't care. They don't think about the original Omri. They just think, oh, that sounds pretty. Omri? is the name of the king that we're going to meet. That's what does that mean? Omri? Uh, Omer. Omri. Don't know. He was a pagan. Absalom, Ab the half-brother of Amnon, now because, because of the fate of his sister, it's a tragic fate, you have to realize a woman who's raped in the ancient world doesn't have much of a future. That's why the Torah requires that the rapist marry her. That's her, at that point, best hope, her best prospect. Nobody else is going to marry her. That was the way of the ancient world. So Absalom, protective of his sister, is livid, and ultimately orders his own men to assassinate Amnon it takes place at the feast where the king has a feast for all of his sons and while they're there at the feast both Absalom and Amnon are at the feast and Absalom's men assassinate Amnon it's the first act i mean you could say the rape is the first act it all starts with sin it all fa- uh, all sin starts where cuz teach teaches famously which part of the body right up here folks eyes the eyes see, the heart lusts, and the body acts. That's why Shmiras Enayim is a major theme in all Musra books in and all, in all of our tradition. If you take care of your eyes, you don't originally get that um, jealousy, that, that covetous desire, um, and then it doesn't lead to, to a whole ch- chain of events that spiral out of control. These are the first events that will spiral out of control and lead to a full-scale civil war and insurrection against David a Melech, a terrible episode in his monarchy. Um, Av Shalom, who's known for his beauty and also for his wisdom, Mar'n us is a big chacham. His problem, Chazal tells us, he had his own power lust. He wanted the job, he wanted to be king, like his father. Um, he will now, after assassinating Amnon, he blames the whole episode on his father's overindulging his children. He has resentment for his father, but Chazal say also he wants dad's job. He develops the following, he's charismatic, again, he's very attractive, and that, that draws people to him. He also takes one of the smartest men alive on, as an advisor, that man, Achisophel, the same Achisophel that we met a few minutes ago. And he plans a coup against his own father, David, Uh, One of his striking physical characteristics, long hair. Uh, The long hair looked like, what kind of of Torah figure does a long, he wasn't one of these, Nazir. He looked like a Nazir, so he had an aura of piety about him. People were drawn to him, thinking he was very, very from. He... um, Sophil's word in those days were, were like the Urim and Tumim themselves. Remember the Urim and Tumim, which either are the Choshen Mishpat or a, a note within the Choshen Mishpat, it's like the word of God, the word of Hashem himself. So you had Achisophel, you have this pious charismatic young man, um, Avshalom, and the people thought that was the way you're supposed to follow. They started following Avshalom and abandoning David. And they ultimately put David into cherem. They excommunicate David. They didn't have the authority to do it, but they did it anyway. And it forces hold the thought. David suddenly turns around, and the people turn on him. He and six hundred of his loyal followers flee for their lives. He flees with what's called the kreti, and the plati, uh, which is there's different different uh, definitions of what that is. Either bodyguards or the Sanhedrin. Some say that's the Urim and in itself. They flee. Kind of standing here. They're down in I can act out this a little bit. They're down in Yushalim. They run east. They run east by way of Harazesim, this whole mountain region, uh, immediately over here to our east as well. And they head out towards the Judean desert uh, for their lives. As Absalom comes and usurps the position of his father. I don't have that in front of me, and I think there's an answer to that. It's later in his rule. He ruled for a total of four, 40 years, and it's sometime later into his, into his, uh, in his rule. He sends back two of his own loyalists, Sadok and Evyasar. Evyasar, you remember, was the one who escaped, from, was the one survivor of the Kone Nov. The Kohanim were all killed by, by Shal. Evyasar survived. He's, he's, a, he's, a co, he's the Kohen. Um, they go back to serve the Aaron Kodesh. He also leaves his ten concubines behind. David his ten concubines that he leaves behind in Yushalayim as well. And that sets the stage for the next part, but I'll take questions. Go ahead, Jake. Um, who, who is the one who is the uh, one Absalom, his son. Isn't he the one who uh, lost his, uh, his fortune in the world? Do we have pornography of his chariot. Can share you? Yeah. I we talking about the yesterday, he had or whatever, so uh, No, that was Achav. Oh, the Ahav. That's Ahav. if I, if I, I mean, Achav definitely fits that characteristic, right. and his wife put it there. Ezevel so had the whole thing, I think you're, I think you're confusing Medrashim. I don't know of any such Medrash associated with Av Shalom, yeah. but when I say that, I want to be clear, that just means I don't know about it, not that it doesn't yeah. exist. I, I don't know everything, you know. I, I I know I stand up in front of here and I, I give over uh, probably way too much information, and the implication is somehow I have learned it all. I, I'm a work in progress myself. This every year I give over this history, and I'm always fine tuning and adding and subtracting. So I don't know. I think you're you're confusing with Acha. Okay, the stage is set. Avshalom is now the apparent king. David is fleeing to the desert, and there's a very terrible thing that happens. Somebody that he himself actually saved, he himself uh, went, went to bat for him, a fellow by the name of Shimi Ben-Gera. Shimi Ben-Gera, who's going to be the ancestor of Mordechai, comes from the tribe of Binyamin, comes after him. He's a disciple of David, and he talk about betrayal. Shimi Ben-Gera is sometimes considered the ultimate traitor, the ultimate in betrayal. He runs after David, he capitulated to Absalom's side, but it's not enough that he just taken the side of his son. He comes throwing stones at David, the holy David Melech, and he's throwing stones at his own mentor, and he curses him with the pasuk describes as a klala nimretzis, a, 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 a very intense curse. Yirmar Shabbos defines the word nimretzis by the six letter six letters of the word nimretzis. He calls him a noeth, you adulterer. A Moavi, Nimretzes. Noib, Moavi. Why Moavi? You descend from Rus. Excellent. Excellent, are you? You descend from Rus, the Moabite, that's a lowly kind of uh, origin. Rotsayach, your murderer, because you set up Uriah. Sorer, you afflict your people. Uh, and Toeva. Toeva, you're an abomination. And David, David just stands there accepting it. Now David could have retaliated, he had 600 men with him, and he accepts it. Um, his men say, we should step forward and kill Shimi right now on the spot. You're still the king. He is absolutely high of Misa. He, he deserves the death, punish, death penalty. And David says, no, he's self-effacing. He doesn't want at any level that people should think that he's acting out of self-interest. Here's another indication. Akiva, if you weren't satisfied with Shuvah Gemara before, I would say it's here very much on display. His, his absolute Shuvah. Brother Victor Miller explains, at this point, because he accepts humility, humility so beautifully, um, he now, he uh, Miller brings in a Gemara in Psachim that explains, David now gets a promotion in Shem's book. Previously, Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov have something from a Kaddish Baruch called a Magain. A Magain is a special shield, it's invisible, it's not a literal thing, but it's a shield, it's a protection. Like we say, Magain Abraham. It's a special shield that Hashem affords to his loyal Avos. And from this point on, now David himself is the fourth figure who's who's got a magain and we call it Magain David because of his... And it, it, we, we see it on display here, but it's evident throughout David's life. This is probably the major episode. Hold the thought for a second, because sometimes when your hand is in the air, you're so focused on what you're going to say that you're not necessarily focused on this. It's a very significant episode. The Gemara also says that there are four legs on a table, and the kise, uh, on the chair of honor, the Kavod. The four legs themselves are Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, and now David. David is, has this mugging... Um, none of which is to be confused with a maybe you've seen the shape there's a shape of these two triangles one upside down placed on the other that today is called the mugging david um it doesn't have any clear jewish origin that particular shape even though people have associated it with things like i don't know the jewish state uh they put it on parochas they put it on all kinds of things um but that what they call today they nickname the Mugin david we have no indication that david had anything to do with that shape um, the earliest indication that that shape has anything to do with the Jews only starts from the time of the Rishonim, the late Rishonim. There's a tshuva in the Igros Moshe where he he talks about the Magin David. They ask him, does it have to be removed from a parochus from a curtain over a Torah? And he says, no, it doesn't have to be removed. He says maybe you could you could understand it as a symbol of Hashem being everywhere in the six dire- six directions, since the two triangles have ultimately six corners and it's up, up, down, left, right, you know, north, south, east, west and like that, he he gives that parshanut. but Rav Moshe says it's not clear that it has any other significant origin what does is the Magin David that David in his greatness and his humility and his tshuva has this Magin David Go ahead, Barak so why was David awarded with this with great honor while Saul, in a very similar situation, also, <laughs> punished? Because he's too... Um, you have to know... Good question. Why cool? was David rewarded when Saul is punished? You have to know when to be humble. The timing is everything. And the, and, and the choice of places and times is, is... It's one of the exact same situations. It's not, though. David's <laughs> humility doesn't come at, any exp- at the expense of anything. Saul's is misplaced, Chazal say. Without, without digressing too much. One more comment about Shimi Ben Gera. He has a great wife. Did you ever hear of Ashes Shimi Ben Gera? I'll just mention She deserves historical mention. She, meanwhile, remember Dov, this is like a real exciting episode. Dov has sent back his two undercover spies, Sadok and Evyasar, and they're on the run from Absalom's men. Absalom went to look for them. And they, and Sadok and Evyasar come into the tent of the wife of Shimei ben Gera, and she protects them. She's a great woman and what does she do very cleverly? She hides them and then sits in her tent and they're not looking at her and while they're not looking at her, she does something that no from Jewish woman would ever do. She takes off her head covering and she's sitting there in the tent with the head uncovered when Absalom's men come to see if the, you know, if the two spies are there, if Sadok and Evius are there, they come and they see immediately her head's uncovered and they leave her alone. And they they assume that no Jewish man would ever see a, a married woman with her head uncovered. Chassar Shalom, such a thing is against halacha, and so they, they, they flee. And because she saves these tzaddikim and she literally covers for them as she sits sits, sits there uncovered. Um, she merits, the Medrash concludes she merits two righteous descendants by the name, who are, who are ultimately going to cover for the Jewish people and save them Mordechai and of course Esther, Mordechai and Esther descend from her and of course her husband Shimei ben Gera, last episode for today, Absalom is sitting in Yerushalayim, sitting in David's chair ruling, w- w- the, the part of Klal Yisrael that is, has that is, that is, that is, uh, been loyal to him and he wants to know, he wants to do some dramatic gesture to show that he is the new king. And he seeks counsel with who else? Achisofel, the wisest man in the world. Let's, and again, his counsel was like, Hashem, like, like counseling Hashem. Uh, and Achisophel has a really striking idea. He says, you know the 10 concubines, the pilagshim that your father left behind? You know, lie with them in public. And the people will know now the act was one that was symbolic. When one king takes the previous king's wives or concubines, that means he's the new king. We just saw this. I mentioned this yesterday. It was the same thing that Ishboshis had accused Abner of doing, of taking his father's concubine, which is a real show of power. It's a power struggle. And so that's what not quite. I mean, it's a little bit horrific sounding to our ears. It's very immodest, to say the least. But as a power struggle, it does certainly pack a punch. Um, and Absalom's response is, Oh, okay. And he gets conflicting advice from another advisor by the name of Hushai, who says, Don't do that. Just go out and confront your father personally yourself. And Absalom ignores Ahisophel and instead follows Hushai's advice and he directly confronts David. He doesn't touch the concubines. Ahisophel sees that his vice is no longer fathered, followed. He sees that his... The jig is up, he goes home and does something quite interesting, Um, he, uh, he hangs himself, he strangles himself. Um, it may be in response because he didn't answer initially when David asked the question, does anyone know the answer? Can I write Hashem's name on the shard of Pottery? And our Gemara explains he didn't answer initially and the curse of a, of a great man, even when the terms of the curse don't come true, ultimately let him be strangled. That was David's curse and the, the curse comes true here. It's also true that ah- Ahi Sofel understands his link to greatness is through his, his advice. Advice comes from Akadosh Baruch Hu. When that's no longer relevant, um, he understands that his time is, is over and he commits suicide. In terms of his legacy, we understand that Ahi was motivated for, by self-gain. He's one of the four commoners who has no portion of the world to come. However, he's also got redeeming virtues. All of those men who lack a portion of the world to come, all have greatness to them. Part of Ahi greatness was being somebody who teaches. Um, we learn in Perke Avos, if you learn something from your friend, if you learn a whole chapter from your friend, you know what, if you learn one halacha, if you learn just one pasuk, even if it's just one statement or a single letter, you owe your friend kavod. How do we know that's true? The Mishnah concludes, David Melech Israel, learned two small things from Ahisophel, and he's still called Ahisophel, Rabo Alufo miuado, my Rebbe, my, my, my chief, my advisor. Um, what's not always known, what were the, what were the two things? It's good trivia. It's not trivia, it's significant, but good, good, less known information. What were the two things that Achisofel taught David? I guess one of them is going to be really ironic. So no, not at all. They're two simple, that. basic things. He said, when you learn Torah, always learn in Chabrusa, which is really good advice. Um, when you learn in Chabrusa, it's one plus one equals three. You learn so much more, so much more effectively. You're forced to put yourself to the task. That's what Achisofel advised. And the second thing he said, when you go to shul, run. Don't just walk to David. Run. You show Hashem how enthusiastic you are. Your are Zrizus. <coughs> they ask on this. Those are two pretty simple, straightforward ideas. The second one. ironic. Why is it ironic? What do you think? Because he didn't run to go tell David. That's a good point. That's a fair point. Um, but we're learning from this that even so, even the, with these two simple ideas that David learned from Achisophel, he's still full of Hakara um, Satov. In the end, as we, see, as we saw, Absalom ignores uh, Achisophel's advice. He follows Hushai's advice, and he confronts David in a place called Machanaim in the north. And that's where Bezrash Hashem will pick up the episode tomorrow, what happens when Absalom confronts his own father in battle.